Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, October the 19th, 2022, a couple of weeks away from the midterm elections, which will set the political agenda for America over the next couple of years. And we're all asking ourselves, where's the energy coming from? Where's all the excitement? Is it from the left or the right? Um, yesterday, I did a, a show with Tim Schenk, very smart, young historian. He's politically on the left. He's the co-editor of Dissent. And he's also the author, I think, an important new book, Realigners, Partisan hacks, political visionaries, and the struggle to rule American democracy. He seems to suggest that every generation there is a realigner, more energy from somebody or other, and from a movement that redefines American politics. And it was interesting that he picked out Phyllis Shafley, uh, the conservative crusader, who, in his view, seems to be the inspiration behind. Uh, the right-wing resurgence of the late 20th century out of Shafley. We got Barry Goldwater, according to her, uh, according to, to Schenck, and Ronald Reagan and all the rest of it. My sense is that there is a new energy brewing on the right. Um, we talked to Jen Senior recently about uh, Steve Bannon, uh, who she called in a, in a wonderful New Yorker piece, American Rasputin, she's no great fan of Bannon, but I think she acknowledged, as we all do, that he has a great deal of energy and perhaps even originality. Um, we're talking again about energy on the right today with my guest, Kyle Spencer. She has a new book out, Raising Them Right, the untold story of America's ultra-conservative youth movement and its plot for power more Leninism, perhaps, from critics of the right. Um, and there seems to be a kind of clever Leninism on the right. Uh, Kyle is joining us from Brooklyn, the People's Republic of Brooklyn on the <laughs> east coast of the United States. Kyle, you're obviously no great fan of, of the right, nor am I, actually. But there seems to be an enormous amount of energy. Is your book partly about that? Yeah, it's such a great way to describe it. Um, I think of it as a lot of energy, but there's also a tremendous amount of organization and money and coordination, a lot of intentionality that you see on the right right now, and particularly on the young right, that is um, that you don't see. You see a lot more like chaos and fecklessness on the left in, you know, in the United States, particularly with the Democratic Party. As I said, I, I'm certainly politically not on the right, and I know you're not either, but there's nothing wrong with this, is it? I mean, you are really observing a fundamental truth, as you say. The money, the energy, the organization is on the right. What is happening, Kyle? Um, yes, yeah. You know, it's funny because it's the thing that I, as you pointed out, Andrew, it's very counterintuitive because Democrats like to think of themselves as the party of the young. And they really are. When you look at the, the things that Democrats care about and the policies that Democrats want to pass. Um, but what happens is that with this big tent that we have um, on the Democratic side 
and creates a kind of lots and lots of people in this tent with different interests. And the way I really see it a lot and the way that I talk about it in my book as far as it pertains to Democrats is you kind of have this divide between the older establishment Democrats and you have these younger Democrats who the older establishment is kind of afraid of. They think they're too progressive. They want to work too fast. Um, they message things that sound too radical for moderates. So you have that, that group. And then you have the older establishment Democrats who the young folks don't really trust and who they don't think are really supporting them. The problem that you have is that the these two sides end up fighting all the time and they do it like very publicly, which I think a lot of people will say, oh, that's so wonderful. They open they're open yeah. about the differences. Yeah, and it's interesting. Uh, we had Michael Tomaski on the show, uh, yeah. uh, a very distinguished figure on the left who has a new book out suggesting that Biden is reinventing America, that American politics is realigning around Biden. Tim Schenk, who's a much younger leftist than, than, than Tomaski, strongly disagreed. And I agree with you. The organization is on, on the right. I, I use this term Leninism, uh, Kyle, carefully, and, and particularly in the context of Peter Thiel, who's one of the smartest investors and visionaries uh, on the right. Is there an element of Leninism here? Have these people been reading, if not Lenin himself, the ideas of Lenin about seizing power, about focusing on organization and power. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it's interesting because when you talk to these folks about the kind of guys that they're looking at and the folks that they're emulating, it gets a little alarming very quickly. Um, and, you know, in addition to looking at, you know, Lenin and, 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 and those kind of older youth movements, in a sense, they're also like this guy, Sal Alinsky, whose book Rules for Radicals was popular in the 60s among leftist union unionizers. Yeah, it influenced um, uh, Obama, didn't it? It did. It, well, you know, the thing is, it, it, Sal Alinsky's book is about um, organizing and motivating. And, you know, Andrew, I think we can all agree that is agnostic. You organize in an effective way or you don't. And a guide to help you organize can help you organize people over anything. Good ideas, bad ideas, democracy, fascism. So uh, your book is doing a good job. I'm sure it's outraging conservatives, but it's also probably not making the left happy. Raising them right, the untold story of America's ultra-conservative youth movement and its plot for power Tell me about this story, Kyle. How did you get involved? And you've become uh, one of America's leading journalists uh, on this new movement. It's a very, very important story. Did you just sort of tumble into it? You've done a lot of independent journalism yeah, for the so New York I, Times and many other newspapers. Yeah, so, you know, I, I actually didn't even intend to write this book. I was on college campuses a lot for stories I was writing about higher ed for the New York Times and to some extent Politico and doing research for Frontline. And I started to see these young activists behind these tables on these campus quads, these kind of dudes in flip-flops and khaki shorts, and they were gun rights activists. And they were passing campus carry laws in their states that would allow their classmates to like really bring handguns to math class. And when you talk to them, they would tell you, oh yeah, I'm doing this on, this is like what I'm into, I'm doing, we're doing it on our own. 
And I just didn't buy it. So I started going through tax documents and looking at the budgets of various organizations on campus. And it became clear to me that it was actually these very adult organizations like the NRA and like the more radical um, Gun Owners of America, if you can believe there's an organization more radical than the NRA, but there is. Yeah, they we've were... done that. You no need to tell me that. We've done yeah. shows on the NRA and where all the warning is that the that we might one day really miss the NRA. Oh God. I mean, right, exactly. But um, but 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 what I discovered was that they were on a very, very purposeful um journey to radicalize young people on college campuses and get them to want to have guns on campuses and to use and i mean just as an aside which i think is really interesting is they use feminism they use a lot of the tools of the left speaking about how you organize people i mean they they, they have now really been very effective with this campaign um uh to to lure young women saying well you know there's there is you know we used to say there was no rape culture on campus now we say there is rape culture and uh you need a gun in order to protect yourself uh, kyle you use this word lure um is this all one big conspiracy a lot of people are going to be watching this most of my audience and lit hub in particular is progressive so i don't suppose a lot of conservatives are going to see this or watch it but my sense is that from your book and from, from from other conversations that some of this is genuine it's not some huge conspiracy it's not as if the Koch brothers or Peter Thiel paid for all these magic mushrooms and forced all these people to take them and then hallucinate on right-wing ideology you know they are spending a lot of money on it I mean that's what my book really shows yeah but you know uh, George Soros spends a lot doesn't mean that people on the left are hallucinating I don't, George Soros is not doing the kind of unified, the, the, this is what I really try to show in my book is that, and I'll, I have two, two kind of two points to your, to your question, but first okay. of all, George Soros is not working very, very, very closely with other Democratic donors to give very intentionally to message very, very specifically to young people. The Democrats who have good ideas ought to be doing that, and they're not doing it. And what my book tries to show is if you want to compete with these folks who have bad ideas, you ought to get better at working together, pooling your money and messaging to young people the good ideas you have. But the other thing I want to say is that the, 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 what happens is that a lot of these folks on these college campuses will pass themselves off as moderates. They have very radical ideas, which they manipulate to look like they're pretty moderate. And people are invited to come to pizza parties and to come hang out and watch movies. And the next thing you know, they're getting, uh, they're watching documentaries about why guns ought to be on campus. And they watch documentaries. Okay, that are let, let me jump in. Uh, and uh, yeah. I apologize if I, I keep on interrupting, but Kids on college campuses, I mean, I've got a daughter in college and a son who's just graduated. They're adult enough to know that if you get invited to a pizza party and then suddenly the TV goes on, that there's something dodgy going on. You know, I, you'd be surprised. I mean, you're, you know, you know, this can get into a whole conversation about the American education system and how little American kids really know about American history and how much they're really paying attention <laughs> to the hard facts of politics. So if you're some kid and you arrive on some big state school and you aren't really paying a lot of attention, you may end up being invited to some, you know, I'm going to go see some some movie about the climate. And you kind of think, oh, that must be some global warming mm -hmm. thing. And the next thing you know, they're telling you global warming doesn't exist. And they're spending millions of dollars to make these videos very, very personal. We, we used to, Kyle, we used to worry about kids going to sex parties on campus, and now we're worrying about pizza parties. I, it, it, listen, it'd be much, as, as far 
far as I'm concerned, it'd be much better if they were going to sex parties than they were going to listen to people, you know. Uh, but, you know, but, 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 you know, I want to say, Andrew, your point is right that these guys believe this shit, you know. I mean, it's not like they're, we talk about it like they're luring them in, and they are. They're being very crafty and very, very specific and very intentional about their messaging because that's how they're going to lure people in. But I, it is true that Charlie Kirk believes a lot of this Christian nationalism. Right. So let, let's get into the, the weeds here. Yeah. One of the, and, and I, I, he's not a hero, but one of the central characters in your narrative, Raising Them Right, is this character, Charlie Kirk. We've all heard of him, but you know him better than most. Tell me about him. Well, a lot of people think Charlie Kirk is not a bright guy. And that would be the first thing, the first myth I'd like to dispel. He is a very smart, very savvy guy. And he is incredibly magnetic. And not only do young people like him, like him but these old geezers who fund him really fell in love with him around 2012. Do you think he could be the, uh, the, the Phyllis Shafley of the early 21st century? Uh, you know... It's possible. He, he's, uh, I mean, I think he's probably going to be potentially more important than her because he's got a much larger, wider audience of young and old. Um, and he uses social media in a way, obviously, that she was not able to. I mean, that's the thing about social media is you can multiply your following so quickly if you're savvy about how you use it. Um, but he comes out of, a, a, you know, I think I think the most interesting thing about Charlie is that he was not well liked in high school and he didn't get a lot of respect from his peers. That's important. And the other thing that's super important about him is that he went to a high school that was increasingly diversifying. And by the time he arrived there, it was a majority minority school, which meant that a white guy was a minority. And, you know, it was the soccer team. He was an athlete, a mediocre athlete, although he likes to pretend he was like a, you know, big deal athlete. But he, you know, it was the soccer team, which was filled with a lot of the immigrant kids who had arrived recently. They were the guys that got all the attention, not the football yeah, team. Yeah, I bet he wasn't popular with the girls. So are you suggesting that guys like Charlie Kirk, it's their way to get girlfriends, like Mark Zuckerberg invented Facebook to get a girlfriend? <laughs> yeah. Our way to get girlfriends, but I think it's important to understand that this I, this replacement theory stuff that we hear a lot about now comes from really deep seated insecurity among certain insecure white guys. And I hate to like simplify this so much, but I, it, time and time again, you fall upon this. Like the, the roots of this are real anxiety. Is, is, this a, is this rooted in white suburban boys who feel a bit left out? We we did a show last week on boys and men and the fact that women are more and more successful in universities and that boys and men don't fit in anymore with the uh, the Brookings, uh, a, a Brookings scholar. Is this part of this broader sort of socioeconomic crisis of white boys and men in America today? I think there's a very strong strain of that here. And, and one of the ways that we know this is that the young people who are most impacted and most uh, uh, ref interested in this messaging are young white men young white boys. So why would the girls have anything to do with it? Why would they want to go to a pizza party hosted by someone who looks like Charlie Kirk? Well, I think if you're a moderate young woman on a call, you're a moderate white girl on a college campus and you don't really um, respond to what, what you know, PC culture or kind of progressive messaging that's coming from some of your student body and you feel a little bit lost, you would gravitate towards a group like that. Remember when they show up on college campuses, they've got a lot of money. So their table has balloons and candy and music. Uh, yeah. and I don't buy that, Kyle. So you're saying that uh, because yeah, they're funded I, by Peter Thiel or Leonard Leo or the Koch brothers, they can afford the balloons, which means that the young girls come and 
come to their pizza parties? Is that how it works? The thing that they do really well is they create messages and they have a lot of swag. And so the messages, they have lots of posters that they say things like, you know, socialism sucks or, or, uh, or, or we're pro-choice, choose one. And then there's, you know, three different kinds of uh, semiotic guns you can choose. But, but is there something, is there an ideological core here? I mean, I, I buy your point. Of yes, course, yes, yes. Hold on, let me finish. I mean, clearly they're good marketers. There's money behind them, blah, blah, blah. But there's something there. It's not just all froth, is it? I, what happens, the reason that they focus a lot on culture war issues is because it does get at the core of the difference and what is alluring about them. You have progressives on college campuses who are their value is change and inclusiveness, and they tend to be, and they're progressive. And when you got a kid who comes from a more conservative environment that maybe wasn't that diverse, they're, they're um, religious. A lot of these kids come to school and they have this kind of religious faith that progressives right. often are just, are dis, you know, disdainful of or distrustful of even, you know, even if that's not the way the Democratic Party feels, a lot of these kids on college campuses that are progressive can be and seem disdainful of somebody who arrives with Christian faith. And remember, like a third of this country is evangelical. So we have a lot of kids who arrive on these campuses with very traditional ideas. And then they've got these progressives that are there kind of in their face and it can be very disconcerting. The, the, and they dominate and control the university, the classrooms and all the rest of it. How, how connected are they with the uh, religious nationalist movement? We had Catherine Stewart on the show. I'm sure you're familiar with her work. Oh, she's great. Uh, yeah, she's excellent. Her book is about the power worshippers inside the dangerous rise of religious nationalism. Is some of this money and organization coming from the evangelical church? The relationship between the far right and the uh, Christian right is so tight. And it's, you know, the, the Christian right actually really informs a lot of the decision making about messaging and the gun rights movement, obviously the pro-life movement, some of the stuff, some of this libertarianism, a lot of it is very aligned with the Christian right. And so a lot, what happens is a lot of the donors are very religious. And so in that way, if they want to, if Charlie wants money from these re really religious donors, he's going to have to toe that line. Yeah, um, is there, uh, uh, sorry, the uh, Leo, uh, Leonard Leo, uh, I know Ka Catherine Stewart uh, makes a, a, a big deal of him. Is he the epitome of it? You know, he just gave a one and a half, more than one and a half billion dollar donation to the conservative movements. Is he the kind of character who is funding these networks? Yeah, I mean, you get a lot of very, very conservative entrepreneurs who have come up, made a lot of money and hold their very conservative religious values dear to them. And they're and they think of young people as being chaotic, um, out of control uh you know unclear on their sexuality bad morals and they want young people to champion them and their value system and someone like charlie kirk or candace owens or a lot of these other influencers yeah. you, see online. you mentioned owens uh, owens is an interesting character because of course she's black she's involved somehow she's connected with kenya west and they both wore white lives matter uh what would you say about someone like owens given that she looks quite different and she has a different background to somebody like Charlie Kirk. 
I mean, she has a lot of the same resentment politics that these other folks have. I mean, she comes up out of a community. She was grew up poor. She was in a mostly white high school. And she had this incident when she was in high school where some um, young men called her up and started yelling uh, racial comments at her, epithets at her. And this got, this got a lot of the uh, community in an uproar. And actually, the way she thought the community handled it was um detrimental to her and her mental health they she felt that the entire community spent uh, months trying to figure out whether what she said had happened had happened she found that some of these um activist groups on the left were really um using her and so she's angry and resentful as well about the past right Kaya, Kaya, why do and, and i say we progressives why do progressives always use the word resentment when someone's angry on the right and 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 they don't use that word when it comes to people on the left. I mean, all, all, all this is about political anger. What's wrong with being angry about being mistreated? I mean, you might not like somebody like Candace Owens. As I said, I'm certainly no fan, but her resentment is the kind of thing that fuels political change, doesn't it? And maybe we shouldn't even be using this word resentment. The resentment on the left and the resentment on the right are really different. The resentment on the right tends to be a sort of, I've been wronged. I'm blaming these people around me. And it's a kind of meism. I need mine back. That's the resentment on the right. The resentment on the left is, I am seeing people who are being wronged. I am part of a group of people that are being wronged. We need to protect other people. We need policies that protect more people. It's one of them is magnanimous and one of them is bitter. One of them is about we. Yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, that's that's the explanation from the left. So you're saying that anger on the right can never get beyond bitterness. It can never be vindicated in any way. I think it's tricky because they're the kind of meism and the kind of individualism um is 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 a tricky is a tricky it, it's hard to get past that being so, right so are you saying then that this raising them right this new youth movement of ultra conservatives is american individualism run amok yeah i would say that because american individualism is a fabulous thing we know that we know that there are so many amazing things that come out of that we have our entrepreneurs we have free thinkers we have creatives we do stuff that no one in the world does but we also have this kind of selfishness and this kind of mistrust of other people and this kind of take care of me. You know, I'm taking care of myself attitude. And that's where that's where it runs amok. But there is idealism on the on the on the right. I mean, the the abortion issue, for example, you may not agree with it. And I'm curious as to why many young women would go to pizza parties in which they're encouraged not to have the right to abortion. It's not just about me. There are bigger issues, religious freedom, abortion, and so on and so forth. And, and that's not just about me, too. I mean, I don't know what Charlie Kirk's position is on abortion, uh, but he obviously can't have one. So I'm assuming he believes in, 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 in the issue. Well, I mean, abortion obviously is an issue that the right... That the, the, the far right and the and the and the, and the um, Republicans created in the '60s in order to have a kind of an issue that could that could um, rally uh, the religious. But you know, they, 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 again, I, I apologize for jumping in, Carl. But, but then you're saying no. they don't believe it. You're, you're saying it's all a conspiracy. 
I'm not saying it's conspiracy. I'm saying that it was a created, it was a message that was created to rally folks from American churches, of evangelical churches, and it worked and it was effective. And the other thing that I want to say about this kind of resentment and this kind of individualism and this religious freedom issue, the religious freedom issue is on the right, religious freedom is I have rights and therefore I'm going to take away your rights to protect my rights. I believe in, this is my faith, therefore you can't have an abortion. This is my faith, therefore I'm not going to make a cupcake for you because you're gay. That is, I have a right, this is my <laughs> religious freedom, I'm going to take yours away. The left, Democrats believe we should all protect each other's rights. That's why the resent, that's not resentment, that's charity. That's consideration. But when I'm talking about my rights and I need to hurt your rights to get my rights, that's not, that is not, uh, that's resentment. That's, that's selfishness. Let's think about these young people raising them right, these people you followed. You said you found them first in flip-flops on college campuses, giving out free pizzas and balloons and peddling ideas about religious freedom and abortion and so on. What happens when they leave college? What happens when they grow up and get jobs? What what, what are you seeing in terms of these, the transition from yeah, that's, youth yeah. to adulthood? Is it, are they forgetting about politics? Are they getting no. into politics? No, and that's baked into the system. Um, when we talk about um, right-wing groups and how they're influencing young people. Most Americans, um, most progressives really worry about people like the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers who have the very same kind of nativist, white supremacist replacement theory ideas. But when they try to recruit, they're targeting some kid in a basement who can't get off video games, right? I mean, this guy's going to come up. He's already a bit of a loner. What's he going to do with those ideas, right? I mean, like, well, I don't know. He could go to the Capitol and, you know, participate in January 6th. But that is a kind of fringe movement. When you talk about these folks that are recruiting on college campuses who have many of the same fringe ideas but are packaging them with a smile, these are college kids that are going to take these ideas, go to graduate, graduate from college, go to graduate school, go into the workforce, go into their communities and bring these ideas into their future lives. And these are these are people that are functioning and that are effective and that are going to be impactful in the world. And that's why I argue in my book that they are much scarier and should be more alarming to Americans than the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers, which seem... Right. Well, what was their take? I'm curious. You mentioned January 6th. There weren't a lot of young people. It didn't seem to be that many young people. It seemed to be a lot of overweight men with beards, old <laughs> yeah. men. Uh, what was their... General, what, what's Charlie Kirk's take, for example, on January 6th? Or Candace Owen, or, or, or another characters you talk about in the book, this very dodgy fellow, Cliff Maloney, who's been accused of raping a classmate. What do they all make of, of January 6th? Well, the, um, when Charlie Kirk talked about January 6th on January 6th, because I have a scene in my book where Charlie Kirk is literally watching on his podcast folks storming the Capitol. And he walked a very fine line. And during this podcast that went on for hours, he condemned the violence. And then people on the cat podcast kind of wondered, well, wait a second, are these really conservatives? Or is this some sort of 
Um, you know, are these really leftist dressed up as MAGA supporters? Or So there was this kind of question of like, who are these people? There was condemning the violence. But the thing that I found most interesting about listening to that podcast while this thing was going on was this lack of surprise on Charlie Kirk's part that this was happening and an acknowledgement that people were angry and they had a right to be angry. It, it was a very searing and kind of disturbing message that this rage was really purposeful and meaningful and that it was understandable that if you get people mad enough, this is the type of thing they do. It kind of sounded threatening. Uh, here we have an image of, of Kirk. You, you wrote an interesting piece for uh, airmail, uh, Kirk and, and Donald Trump. Um, are there candidates who, who get this? I mean, some of them, I'm guessing, they probably should read your book. Um, is Kirk uh, a player now in, in Republican politics? I'm assuming he's getting uh, lots of calls from Ron DeSantis's people. Yeah, I mean, his organization raised $55 million in 2020. So he is getting a lot of money. And the reason he's getting money is because he's effective at messaging and he's a personality that young people and older people are listening to. I think the where, where he really has his power is his understanding of how to communicate online and on campuses and in the and to really, you know, he's also doing a lot of work in religious communities. He's an excellent messenger and he really resonates with crowds, whether he's on a campus, on a Fox News, um, on one of his podcasts or inside a church. Like he's extremely good at messaging. So he is very powerful. And they also like listen to him when it comes to strategy. Um, so he is, yeah, I mean, I argue, I, I would argue. Is that I'm with Bannon. Huh? Is Bannon yesterday's man in your view? You know, Bannon is tricky because Bannon really comes off as a radical and Charlie really tries to present himself as a moderate guy. Um, we had a show also, I mentioned Catherine Stewart. We also did a show with Ann Nelson. I think you, uh, and Catherine Stewart and Ann Nelson are three of the most important um, journalist covering this new movement. Uh, she's another interesting writer. She has a book, Shadow Network, Media Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. Is there a conspiracy here in your view, Kyle? Are, are guys like Charlie Kirk meeting at some retreat in Aspen or New Mexico or something to plot to take how to take over America? Well, first of all, I want to tell you that Ann Nelson is such a gifted journalist, and I yeah. actually thank her in my book because the work that she does on yeah. explaining how these folks actually organize is just so essential to every journalist's understanding of how right. this And Catherine Stewart, I mean, I think if but anyone... Catherine Stewart as well. Stewart's book, Nelson's book, and your book, and watches the interviews, they'll learn a great deal. Yeah, exactly. And um, and we need that because it's not I like I don't like to refer to this as a I don't know what conspiracy theory really means in this context. I think what we understand is that these folks work together very, very closely. They meet together all the time. And as Ann Nelson writes in her book, they meet in secret a lot and they plot and they plan and they plot. They don't plot like what are we like, think about Democrats is they're very reactive and they're constantly worrying and particularly Democratic donors. When you talk to them, they all want to know about the next election and winning the next election. These Republicans and these arch conservatives have been working for years on a long term plan. I mean, just even this Dobbs ruling, this was laid up for years and they did this laying up and coming up with this pot plan 
plans. They have been doing this in secret meetings that Ann Nelson writes about. Um, and she writes about you know, CMP. They've been doing this forever and they love meeting. And one of the things I write about in my book is about some of the early um, organizers of this right wing movement in the 60s. And one of the things that they understood was so important was meeting together, having community and getting right. people in the same room a lot. Yeah, but it's the Phyllis Shafley yeah. uh, thesis, and maybe Charlie Kirk is the new Phyllis Shafley. So basically, is the argument in your book, Kyle, because most of the people reading it, I think, will be progressives. Most of the people watching this will be progressives. I'm on the left. Is the message that progressives need to organize in the same way, that, no. this, is, that this is the only way to operate politically in the early network 21st century that we're not doing it right yeah so you know it's funny because i'll tell you that when i went when i first started reporting on these guys and um they would ask me well why should we invite you in and i would say because i'm incredibly impressed with what you're doing and that stoked their egos and of course that was an agnostic statement i was not saying i like your ideas and i told them off and i didn't but they're um they're they're, they're strategizing that they do is really 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 um impressive so um what, so they would say to me sometimes, oh, well, what you're really doing is writing a guidebook for the Democrats. And I would kind of chuckle and say, maybe, but it's not, as you point out, Andrew, it's not really a guidebook for the Democrats. The guide and the and the thing, the takeaway for Democrats um, and for progressives from this book is we have got to, two things, spend a lot more money on messaging and get a lot more effective at messaging. And I think equally importantly, these guys finance and support their young Democrats fight with their young. And if we cannot get these different groups inside the big tent of the Democratic Party, the young and the old together to start working some of this out and better communicating, we're not going to win this. I mean, we are really going to be in bad straits and we're going to continue to see our democracy demolished. Um, so it's again, it's it's we have to find our own way. We do not traffic in misinformation. We do not traffic in manipulation, but we have good ideas and we're not messaging them uniformly in the way we need to. And we're not even really spending the time and money to figure out how to message. Right. We do a lot of like you should vote Democrat, not what is it that we really believe in? Or we use a lot of fear now. I think when, interestingly enough, in 2020, four in 10 young people voted for, tr for Trump. And um, that's a lot of people. But we also had really high voter turnout, right? 50 to 60% of young people in 2020 got went to the polls. Why did they go to the polls? They were scared to death. But Democrats can't use fear as a way to motivate young people to get to the polls. Kai, what about the issue of wokeness? Uh, I use that term carefully, but everybody knows what it means. Yeah. It, it seems as if uh, the, the radical right are making hay off this. They have been doing for years, and now young people on the right are in, in your book, and maybe it's the woke university that's driving them to these meetings. Do, do, does the left need to re-examine this too? Is it ultimately a way to scare off most people? Yeah, you know, I have such mixed feelings about young progressives and what they do on college campuses because, you know, young people have always pushed us past our comfort zone and really pushed, you know, progressivism and opening the tent even bigger for people and being more sensitive to different minorities, right? They're always pushing that. It can be very off-putting for people. And just as Obama said recently, like, we have to be able to take, be patient and allow people to come along, right? Right. 
But the thing that's most important about the kind of activism on college campuses is that, yes, there are progressives that are intolerant and that are there constantly trying to wag their finger at other people and telling them that they're doing it wrong. But it's not happening as much as the right would like you to believe. And one of the things that I write about in my book that young activists are taught to do is to weaponize their phone, which means they ought to bring their phone with them everywhere and they ought to videotape any time they see a progressive student getting angry or getting, um, you know, or, or screaming or, or, or being intolerant, which happens, right? And so they, 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 they slap these videos together, they throw them online, they get a lot of traction, they go viral, and then everybody who reads Breitbart and any other right-wing publication is convinced that the, the college kids on campus are totally intolerant and they're running everything. And then that, that bleeds into the Wall Street Journal, more moderate press. And then suddenly you're seeing this in the New York Times in places where now all these liberals are convinced, oh my God, college campuses are bastions of intolerance to some extent, but not at all to the extent that the right is leading everybody to believe. All right, it's a very, very interesting argument, a very important one, raising them right, the untold story of America's ultra-conservative youth movement and its plot for power. It's no longer an untold story. Kyle has told it and it's an important one. Thank you so much, Kyle. And I think we all appreciate what you're doing here with Ann Nelson, as I said, and uh, Catherine Stewart. You're doing great work. Uh, what else would you suggest people read about the right, conservatives or otherwise? What are you reading these days? So I have this. It's funny because I have all these books back here and they are many of the same books that you've been talking about. Yeah. And, um, uh, one of the ones I love is Copeland by Christopher Leonard, which talks about the Coke, the Coke um, industry, yeah. so family, how they've organized. Yeah, Leonard was actually, you know, he has a, a later book on the on on the Fed. Um, and yes, he's yeah, been he's, on the show a couple of times. He's an excellent journalist. Amazing. And the other book I, I want to recommend is Andrew Marin's book Antisocial, which is about um, these kind of more radical right movements. But it's a fabulous book. It's so good. And I highly recommend it to anyone who wants to understand how these folks are doing their work and trying to, you know, bring people to the right.